This is Shakespeare on Bard, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare, one play at a time. Today, the comedy that deserves to be taken a lot more seriously than it is, the comedy of errors. There had she not been long, but she became a joyful mother of two goodly sons. And, which was strange, the one so like the other as could not be distinguished, but by names. Home to your house, the Phoenix, sir, to dinner. My mistress and her sister stays for you. Now, as I am a Christian, answer me in what safe place you have bestowed my money, or I shall break that merry sconce of yours that stands on tricks when I am undisposed. Aye, aye, Antipholus. Look strange and frown. In Verona, my late cousin Romeo was three times as stupid as my Dromeo. All right, as always, we're going to give you a short summary. How short? Here's the comedy of errors in one minute. Let's start the timer. Go. All is well in the city of Ephesus, unless you're Aegean of Syracuse, who arrives in Ephesus looking for his son Antiphilus and his son slave Dromeo. Antiphilus and Dromeo are missing, having gone in search of their lost twin brothers, from whom they were separated at birth. Since merchants from Syracuse are forbidden in Ephesus, Aegean is given one day to pay a thousand marks or he'll be put to death. Elsewhere in the city, Antiphilus arrives with Dromeo and sends his servant to secure a room at the inn. Suddenly, Dromeo returns, denies he was ever given money, and tells Antiphilus to come home, where his wife is waiting. Antiphilus beats Dromeo for playing tricks on him. When he sees Dromeo again, the slave denies the incident ever took place. Suddenly a woman arrives, claiming to be Antiphilus' wife, and drags Antiphilus and Dromeo home. In another part of the city, a twin version of Antiphilus and a twin Dromeo appear. They are a hero's long-lost brothers, and this is the source of all the confusion. But even though we now know this, the characters don't, and much more confusion ensues until everyone assembles on stage in the final act. The brothers are reunited, and Aegean even finds his long-lost wife, who, in one of the most extraordinary coincidences in the history of theater, was living in Ephesus all along. Scholars can debate the chronology of Shakespeare's plays all they like, but I'll go to my grave believing that Shakespeare wrote The Comedy of Errors after Love's Labor's Lost, Taming of the Shrew, and The Two Gentlemen of Verona. We may have records of when plays were performed, but that doesn't mean Shakespeare didn't write the plays in a different sequence. The Comedy of Errors may be an early comedy, but it is a sophisticated one, and if I didn't have a timeline to look at, I'd guess that it was written by a writer at the top of his game. Part of this may be Shakespeare's source material, since the play is adapted from another play, a farce called The Tomb Anachmi, written by the ancient Roman writer Platus. In that play, there's only one set of twins at the heart of everything, but that wasn't good enough for Shakespeare, who had the inspired idea to double down on the mistaken identity by adding a second set of twins. This is just the first of many changes Shakespeare did to Plotus, and 400 years later, the world is better for it. That the Comedy of Errors has not attained the same respect as, say, Hamlet, is both because we can't ever seem to take comedy seriously, and because the Comedy of Errors has no singular male lead. For centuries, theater was produced by actor-managers, and if they leaned a little towards Hamlet, King Lear, and Richard III, it was because those plays afforded a chance for them to bask in the spotlight. In the Comedy of Errors, though, there are four leads, all of whom must look at least something alike, a casting conundrum which may have convinced people to produce something like As You Like It instead. As with all farce, the play is comically absurd with its great series of coincidences. Aegean is imprisoned in Ephesus the same day that his son and his son's servant arrive in town. That town is also the place where both Aegean's missing son and missing wife live. 
If you're wondering why the missing wife never revealed herself to the missing son, well, you'll be wondering a long time, because it's never quite explained. All of these coincidences are the exact thing you'll often find in a Dickens novel, but Dickens was being serious, whereas Shakespeare was having a grand time poking fun at the very theatrical conventions he himself had adhered to in his previous plays. Love at first sight, mistaken identity, clever wordplay, and all those wild coincidences are all present in his earlier work, but here he doesn't ask us to take any of them seriously. With the Comedy of Errors, Shakespeare asks us to believe that the four actors playing the two Antipholuses and the two Dromeos are two sets of identical twins. I doubt very much that Shakespeare had two sets of identical twins in his company back in 1594, but theater is a suggestive art and Shakespeare knew it. If I say I'm in Ephesus, we accept that I am. Similarly, if we assert that Antipholus of Syracuse looks a lot like Antipholus of Ephesus, we just accept that and go along for the ride. The very premise of the Comedy of Errors makes it a play built especially for the theatre. It even follows the Aristotelian unities, which is more than you can say for the rest of Shakespeare's work. Shakespeare was famously cinematic long before the cinema existed, but the Comedy of Errors is such a theatrical play that it's really hard to see it exist any other way. With Love Labors Lost, Shakespeare showed us that he could be so witty that he wouldn't need a plot. With the Comedy of Errors, he finally figured out how to do both in equal measure. The plot of the Comedy of Errors is a driving one. In each scene, a new problem arises which only increases the stakes. The first scene may be an expository one, but it also informs us that Aegean of Syracuse has 24 hours to come up with a thousand marks or he will be put to death. The mistaken identity commences in the very next scene, but not before Antiphilus establishes that he has come to Ephesus with a very specific goal in mind. He that commends me to mine own content commends me to the thing I cannot get. I, to the world, am like a drop of water that in the ocean seeks another drop, who, falling there to find his fellow forth, unseen, inquisitive, confounds himself. So I, to find a mother and a brother in quest of them unhappy, lose myself. The next scene introduces us to Adriana, who is married to Antiphilus of Ephesus. She assumes that Dromeo of Ephesus has spoken to her husband and sends him to go fetch Antiphilus home, and so the play continues, scene after scene, with the many errors piling up and the comedy following suit. Editors have an easy time with the comedy of errors, both because it's Shakespeare's shortest play and because almost every scene is needed. There are no extraneous bits of dialogue, no unnecessary subplots, and so the play moves along at a pretty steady pace. As with all the best farces, the scenes are carefully arranged so that each one builds on the last. Now, the sophisticated theatergoer in the 21st century will walk into a production of the Comedy of Errors already knowing that Antiphilus and Dromeo are about to have a very confusing day thanks to their long-lost twins. But that's not Shakespeare's fault. We're watching a play after 400 years of spoilers have ruined it for us. Samuel Beckett's play Waiting for Godot suffers from a similar predicament because it's a much different play if you don't know that Godot never actually arrives. Such was the case for the people in the audience on opening night. Philip Hope Wallace, writing of the performance at the Arts Theatre in 1955, said, quote, The play bored some people acutely, end quote, and added that the audience had thinned out after the intermission. In a similar vein, the Comedy of Errors is a much funnier play if we watch it the way Shakespeare intended. That is, from the perspective of Antiphilus and Dromeo of Syracuse, who don't know why they're having such a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. 
As mentioned, the play's second scene introduces us to Antiphilus of Syracuse and his servant Dromeo. Dromeo exits and another Dromeo returns. Those reading the play know at once what has happened thanks to the stage directions, but this is not so for those in the audience, who should see this new Dromeo much as Antiphilus does. Imagine, if you will, an audience member who knows absolutely nothing about the comedy of errors. Imagine also that this audience member is not as savvy as we are in the 21st century and is not able to predict these plots before they actually happen. They are watching the play in perfect innocence. In the very first scene, they are told that Aegean has a son who is searching for his lost twin brother. In the second scene, that son arrives with his servant. When the confusion begins, our innocent audience member might suspect what is going on, but they should also be just as confused as Antiphilus himself, and the staging should be such that this theatergoer, our innocent audience member, should think, as Antiphilus does, that Dromeo who was left is the same Dromeo who has returned. This is how Shakespeare wanted the play to be viewed, because this is how he chose to structure it. Watching the play from this point of innocence, the next few scenes are almost surreal, especially the one that happens between Dromeo of Ephesus, Adriana, and Luciana, who discuss Antiphilus as if he might be mad. Is your tardy master now at hand? Nay, he's at two hands with me, and that my two ears can witness. But see, didst thou speak with him? Knowest thou his mind? Aye, aye. He told his mind upon mine ear. With sure his hand, I could scarce understand it. Speak he so doubtfully thou couldst not feel his meaning? Nay, he struck so plainly, I could too well feel his blows. And withal, so doubtfully, I could scarce understand them. But say, I prithee, is he coming home? It seems he hath great care to please his wife. Why, mistress, sure my master is home mad. Thou, thou! I mean, uh, uh, not cuckold mad, but sure he is stark mad. And in the next scene, Adriana and Luciana approach Antiphilus of Syracuse and his servant, his actual servant, and entice them to come home. And by now, our innocent audience member should be just as bewildered as Antiphilus himself. To me she speaks, she moves me for her theme. What was I married to her in my dream, or sleep I now and think I hear all this? What error drives our eyes and ears amiss? Until I know this sure uncertainty, I'll entertain the offered fallacy. Dromeo, go bid the servant spread for dinner. Oh, for my beads, I cross me for a sinner. This is the fairyland. Oh, spite of spites, we talk with goblins, owls and sprites. If we obey them not, this will ensue. They'll suck our breath or pinch us black and blue. It is not until the very first scene of Act 3 that the audience meets Antiphilus of Ephesus, at which point we are finally allowed in on the joke. The rest of the play, we are able to sit snug in our place of superiority, but until then, the play is actually a surreal comedy, whose central premise is one that might remind the modern reader of Kafka's The Trial. There, Joseph K. is brought to trial and never told his crime. Until the beginning of Act 3, there's no reason why an innocent audience member might not fear a similar fate is befalling poor Antiphilus of Syracuse. The play is funny when we know the joke, but it's far funnier when we don't. The beginning of Act 3, when the twin Antiphilus arrives, should be a moment of comic discovery. It is the twist in the plot. By delaying the dramatic irony, Shakespeare engages us at once by giving us a central question for the very first half of the play. He will do this in Macbeth, will the prophecy given by those three witches come true, and in Hamlet, when he tells us there's a ghost in Denmark, but does not tell us whether or not it's real or what it wants. 
It's not a technique that he uses in every play, but it's by far one of his most effective ones, and it is what helps elevate the comedy of errors from a silly comedy to a truly sophisticated piece of playwriting that indicates our friend Shakespeare was, at long last, finally achieving his potential. Now, humor is subjective, and I'll accept that some of you may not find the comedy of errors to your taste. Every genre has its tropes. You will never enjoy a musical if you can't get past the fact that everyone keeps breaking into song. Similarly, you have to accept the absurdity, chaos, and wild coincidences of farce to enjoy the comedy of errors. But there remains one part of the comedy of errors which is not subjective the show lacks in strong female characters. By 1594, Shakespeare hadn't exactly revolutionized the depiction of women on stage, but he had given us a few memorable creations, including Lavinia in Titus Andronicus, the women in Love's Labor's Lost, and of course Queen Margaret in all those plays about Henry VI. Now here, sadly, he takes a step back with Adriana and Luciana, who are the only female characters of note and fall readily into unfortunate archetypes. Adrienne is described by her husband as being a shrew, oh that word, and when she learns from Dromeo of Ephesus that her husband won't return home, she immediately suspects that she is being betrayed. I know his eye doth homage otherwhere, or else what lets it, but he would be here. Sister, you know he promised me a chain. Would that alone a toy he would detain so that he would keep fair quarter with his bed? I see the jewel best in Amaled will lose his beauty. But the gold bides still that others touch, and often touching will wear gold. And no man that hath a name by falsehood and corruption doth it shame. Since that my beauty cannot please his eye, I'll weep what's left away, and weeping die. All Adriana seems to care about in this play is winning and keeping her husband, and throughout the confusion, this remains her singular motivation. As for Luciana, she chastises Antiphilus not for his supposed adultery, but for letting his crimes be read in his face. Her advice is to be a better criminal. Alas, poor women, make us but believe, being compact of credit that you love us, though others have the arm, show us the sleeve. We in your motion turn, and you may move us. Then, gentle brother, get you in again. Comfort my sister, cheer her. Call her wife. <laughs> Tis holy sport to be a little vain when the sweet breath of flattery conquers strife. Neither Luciana or Adriana seem to have any desires in this play that don't involve men. And the only other women in this play are a prostitute, Dromeo of Ephesus's fat wife, and the twin Antiphilus's mother, Amelia, who is a nun, and who seems more than happy to throw off her vows and reunite with her long-lost husband. None of the women in the play are as offensive as those in Taming of the Shrew, but it can't be denied that they are stereotypes who are interested only in being wives, mothers, and lovers, and this may disappoint the modern reader. Now, it may be that Shakespeare was hampered by the genre. Farce, after all, lives and dies by its archetypes. The henpecked husband, the shrewish wife, the jealous lover, the conniving servant. These shabby depictions of women are a sin, but they are both forgivable given the genre, and I think they are also completely correctable in the modern age. There's no reason we can't have female Dromeos, or that we can't switch the genders entirely to have female Antiphiluses running around who bemuse their shrewish husbands instead. All in all, I can't bring myself to show any cruelty towards this play. It should really be the first play in the canon that everybody reads. It's really the most accessible work Shakespeare ever wrote. 
Aside from its humor, it's also a little sweet and sentimental, a characteristic not often found in farce. And I'll leave you off with the play's charming ending, in which, after all the wild antics of the last five acts, we are left with the two Dromeo, who Shakespeare allows the opportunity to take a breath and acknowledge the fact that they have each not just found a brother, but also finally found a home. There is a fat friend at your master's house that kitchened me for you today at dinner. She now shall be my sister, not my wife. Methinks you are my glass and not my brother. I see by you I am a sweet-faced youth. Will you walk in to see their gossiping? Not I, sir. You are my elder. That's a question. How shall we try it? We'll draw cuts for the senior. Till then, lead thou first. Nay, then, thus. We came into the world like brother and brother. And now let's go hand in hand, not one before another. And now comes the part of the podcast where I talk about film versions of the play I've discussed. I said before that the Comedy of Errors is an innately theatrical play, which may be why there are few movie versions, while plenty of filmed versions of theatrical performances. The show has the distinction of being one of the few shows that was adapted into a musical, the all-too-often-forgotten show The Boys from Syracuse, a Rodgers and Hart musical from 1938 that has been occasionally revived, mostly because of its score. Richard Rodgers is, of course, one of the great composers of musical theater, but is shows with Lawrence Hart aren't nearly as popular as the ones he wrote with Oscar Hammerstein II, either with Posterity or with me. But I like the score to The Boys from Syracuse, and as far as musical adaptations of Shakespeare goes, it has the distinction of being one of the most faithful to the original text. You can keep your Athens, you can keep your home. I'm a hometown fellow and I pine for home. I want to go back, go back to dear old Syracuse. Unless he can pay a thousand marks or borrow it from the local sharks. Why did you come here? I had twins. This can't be love because I feel so well. No sobs, no sorrows, no sighs. West Side Story and the 2013 musical Love's Labor's Lost both modernized their Shakespearean sources, but The Boys from Syracuse keeps things squarely in ancient Rome, perhaps because, as we all know, ancient Rome is the best place for farce to occur. It's difficult to find productions of The Boys from Syracuse, let alone a filmed version, although they did make a movie that I haven't been able to find. So, if you want to see the comedy of errors in all of its farcical glory, look no further than the production performed by the Stratford Festival of Canada in 1990 and now available on DVD. Now, full disclosure, I'm Canadian, but don't let that make you think I'm biased. Stratford has done plenty of productions of Shakespeare shows, which I will not be recommending. But this time out, they really hit the play out of the park. Rather than find four actors to play two sets of twins, director Richard Monette has one actor play both Antiphiluses and one actor play the two Dromeos. Since the nature of the play means they're never on stage at the same time, except for the final scene when body doubles were used, the conceit works wonders for the play, allowing the audience to get just as confused as the characters on stage. Now, I'm not sure if Monette was ever the first to do this, but it works so well that I'm of the mind that it's really the only way the show should ever be produced. 
The production is also wildly funny, with Manette and his able cast of Canadians playing the text for all the comedy it's worth. Now, at 76 minutes, the show is faster than your average film, and some judicious cuts were made, most of them unnecessary, but this still remains my favorite film version of the Comedy of Errors, mostly because of that casty conceit that I really adore. As always, I'm going to put links to everything I've talked about on the show page. That's it for the Comedy of Errors. Next up, one of my favorite plays in the whole canon and a show I can never stop talking about, it's Richard II. If you like Shakespeare and Bard, please subscribe, rate, and review it in the iTunes store. For more information about the things I've discussed, you can visit the show page at www.joelfishbane.net slash Shakespeare and Bard. And hey, while you're there, check out the other things I do with my time, including information about how to get your hands on my novel, The Thunder of Giants, a book about two eight-foot-tall women, now available from St. Martin's Press. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare and Bard. Nine plays down, 29 to go. Will Shakespeare as a play? Let's go and cough through it.